Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Colossal. I just looked at the news and I think I'm in shock. A giant monster just materialized over Seoul. That happened like nine hours ago. You're just hearing about this. What have you been doing all day? You ever notice how it just keeps destroying everything in its path, but it never looks down? It's like it's being operated by remote control. Gloria, <laughs> you gotta see this. It's dancing. It's dancing like... Holy sh... This is another commissioned show from a backer who would like to remain anonymous. Mr. F. This film is an oddball drama with a sci-fi parallel for a very serious real-life social issue that is all too easy to sweep under the rug. And that's the point. It stars Anne Hathaway, maybe at her best so far, as central protagonist Gloria, a burned-out writer moving from New York to New England. Downton Abbey, Beauty and the Beast, and the guest star Dan Stevens features as Tim, the ex-boyfriend, and Jason Sudeikis plays a complicated role that begins as one thing, a childhood acquaintance of Gloria's who gradually becomes something quite different. With us we have Hollywood actress Maya Santandria, who was in our Bojack Horseman and the Babadook episodes. Hello. Hello again, Maya. So we're going to go through this one moment by moment, and I'm going to ask questions which will hopefully spark a lively debate. We first meet Gloria, Anne Hathaway, slumping back home after a long evening. Okay, so question is, how does this movie play with our sympathies here at the outset? What really connects with me about the way they introduce Gloria is that they make no bones about how much of what's going wrong in her life is not necessarily her fault, but her. Her attitude, her approach, she's not doing anything to help herself. But at the same time, it's not totally down on where she is and it allows some room to feel sympathy for why. So they make it very clear that she is drinking more than she ought to be. Uh, She's unemployed and has been for quite some time. She's constantly hungover. She's lying and that the lying i think is something that that they play with the most at this point because it's almost like she really feels bad about what she's done and then she gets caught out in a really stupid little lie about who it was she was with so dan stevens character uh, is um we're going to have to assume that people listening haven't seen this film yet um okay. Because otherwise we have very little to describe. Uh, but so Dan Stevens' character is uh, uh, angry, and, and this is the, his last straw with her. He uh, does he kick her out of the apartment? He gives her his suitcase. Yeah, her he suitcase. Um, he specifically says, "I I packed your things, and your suitcases are ready You're now." Right. Yeah, exactly. So he is pretty much at his end, and he's like, "You know, we we keep having this same argument over and over again," which I guess kind of leads to the sympathy for. Gloria as well, because, Hmm. you know, I I feel like she's she's relatable in that way. Like we've either been in her position or we've been that friend that's or that significant other who's like, 
I cannot, I can't do this anymore with you. Like we keep having the same argument over and over again. And then I get mad and then you do this and you know, like, it's just, we're done at the same time. I kind of feel like, you know, if Tim feels like Gloria really has a problem, he could have, I mean, it's a cold move to just say, Hey, I packed your things and now uh, we're done. Maybe he could have been like, Hey, I, I can't do this with you anymore, but here's a list of like rehab centers that you can go to. Here's some doctors or maybe like a therapist that you can talk to, like to help her do some of the legwork. If he feels like she actually does need professional help instead of just leaving her out on a, you know, out on a rail and to her own devices. Yeah. And I think that's partly how they, they make sure that your sympathies are kind of between both of them, but mostly mm-hmm. with Gloria, that yeah. Tim is, Making him British as well. <laughs> this is going to sound like I'm totally down on my own nation. You're throwing but us under the bus you here. Put a Brit in amongst Americans, and they do sound a little bit ineffectual, a little bit pathetic. Really? Mm. Alan Rickman in Die Hard. Oh. Alan Rickman in Robin Hood. Actually, he's yes. at times. <laughs> at times, he seems to be floundering, desperate to. Uh, <laughs> To, to, to keep order. Indeed, yeah. There's also a, a few little... Also, he clues. was German in uh, Die Hard, so it doesn't Well, have I was actually going to say, he didn't have the British accent yeah. there. Uh, there's a few little things that they use to make it a little clearer as to what the situation is. The fact that there is nothing in that apartment, really, that says it's Gloria's. The fact that everything she owns fits in those three suitcases, mm. which are not hers, yeah. they're his. He says, you can have them, they're cheap. Nice. Oh, they were cheap ones. That's not their apartment. That's his apartment. Uh, you, well, that she can't contest the whole. You're throwing me out. I co-own Absolutely. this apartment, or yeah. we co-lease this yeah. apartment. So, so although it does feel like he is being heavy-handed and it is a dick move, and there are other things that he could have done to be more supportive, it also doesn't feel like she's being utterly shat on and victimised and and thrown out of her her own home and all the rest of it so oh no they, no they definitely kind of... not and especially because like you already said this is of her own like she put herself in this situation this is of her own making mm-hmm. um and she could seek help if she felt like she needed it but she has to make that first step like it has to it has to come from her as well absolutely and this is something that is a a through line for the whole of the movie yeah there are there are things which happen to Gloria which are not her fault. The fact that she gets made redundant, the fact that um, that she, you know, she doesn't have a place of her own. You know, there's, it could be argued that there, those are bad circumstances that she's found herself put in. However, at some point she's had a choice between try to fix this problem or have another drink, and she's gone for have another drink. I actually really like the way they uh, they play this fairly subtly, especially at the beginning. Uh, they could have played up her behaviour either for laughs or for extra drama or grotesquery. She could have staggered home bleeding, passed out in the hallway, puked everywhere, said awful, terrible things to him, and we would automatically be totally with him and think this woman is a wreck. But there's a little bit of, I'm not sure here, I need to weigh this one up. You're, you're kind of asked to be jury at this stage and you're like well we're going to have to wait and see how she handles her behavior for the rest of the film um you know moving forwards Uh, again he could have been 
entirely terrible to her uh, over what we feel like you know he's she's just had a few drinks man and that but then when all of her friends turn up and start taking over the uh-huh. house it's like yeah there's stuff she wasn't telling him and she's so stunned as he leaves in a kind of i really didn't think this was going to happen underlining again her lack of awareness of what's actually been going on with her so it leaves you uncertain but it's not in very broad strokes and it's because of that that it feels like something that's easy to let get out of control Mm, yeah well they they bring the consequences in as a spiral so to begin with her behavior is boorish and yes it's it's a pain in the neck that she's you know she's always too hung over to really spend any time with him but she hasn't hurt him not in the way that that some of the situations like this can really really get out of hand you kind of get the impression that he's pulled the plug on it before it's got to that stage and that if it carried on it certainly could have got to that point and the really serious consequences of her her behavior don't really get drip fed in until much later on (coughs) This is, for folks who haven't seen it, a black comedy, but it's not like The Hangover, which uh, Sharon and I saw last night. <laughs> yeah, uh, we weren't fans. Um, it, it's... I, I, can't, I can't imagine that movie holding up very well. Like, I remember seeing it in theaters, and it, it, I thought it was funny, and then I was like, oh, God, I wonder how it feels now. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'd imagine that the uh, people who liked it originally uh, may have had their patience worn a little thin with two and three as well. Yeah, and, you know, at some point you just kind of outgrow that kind of stuff. Um, mm. But the comedy in, in this, just going back to it, is, is pretty subtle because, you know, it, it is kind of funny when after Gloria is very remorseful, she's like, oh, are you angry at me, Tim? And, like, as soon as he leaves, all of his friends are, like, waiting for him to just get out of the apartment so that they can go up to up to his place and keep the party going like it is kind of funny in a in a sort of dark way but it's not played it, it's played kind of straight yeah it's, it's just the situation itself it's, is, it's, yeah, just, yeah exactly it's got like lumiere's out of the way now we can party be our guest be our guest uh-huh. it's just ironic yeah. since he was the beast mm, me cogsworth Oh yeah, actually Cogsworth. Cogsworth. Yeah, Lumiere is the one who is the maitre d. Like yeah. the Cogsworth is the old the fuddy party. duddy. I managed to catch this in theaters last year. It was it was it had a very short run, but him being in it was part of the reason why I wanted mm. to go see it. I was like, oh, this looks kind of cool. Oh, Dan Stevens is in it. Oh, I'm sold. I'm I'm there. I'll go see it. <laughs> we um, haven't seen uh, Downton Abbey, not an episode of it yet, and uh, we've we've got the first season on Blu-ray. That I, as far as I can tell, doesn't Lily James come in way later? That's a shame, if so, because I we love Lily James. But uh, yeah, that's that's where Dan Stevens you know, grew to. I can't remember because I pretty much watched up until the point where he left, and I was like, oh, okay. no, more Dan Stevens don't <laughs> care. I was like, well, he checked out to go make that one. Uh, I can't even remember what it was. But it was the one right right before the guest, and it was like, okay, well, he's out. I'm I'm kind of checked out too. Uh, he's Sorry, very guys. good in the Man Who Saved Christmas, where he plays a youngish Charles Dickens. Doing the Christmas Carol, but experiencing it as he's writing it, it's great. Yeah, he's fantastic in the guest as well. I the guest is one of my favorite movies now. It's amazing, and and he's great in Legion as well, which oh, is a, that's him. 
first season of Legion was absolutely phenomenal. Some of the best TV I've seen in a very long time. We've bookmarked um, it as a possible mm-hmm. to to watch, if not yeah. to uh, necessarily cover. Um, okay, so moving on, we get to New England, and Gloria goes back home. But her parents are dead, and so the house she's moving into is is empty. Uh, and it's the fictional town of Mainhead, and uh, she immediately meets a guy she knew when she was younger, but has forgotten, though he remembers her. Uh, this is a man named Oscar, and he takes her back to his place of business, just as a sort of a friendly gesture to welcome her to the town. <clears throat> and it's a bar. And my question is, and you can describe the bar itself with your oh. answer, is Oscar's bar just a bar? Or does it potentially represent something deeper, whether the writers intended it to or not? No and yes. Brilliant. Okay. Uh. Explain and explain. (laughs) Okay. um, So the two main things that I get about the bar, um, technically three, um, the the first and most obvious one is obviously the fact that she goes back home to escape the situation that she's dug herself into and try and work out what to do next. And the first situation she finds herself in is one wherein she is surrounded by alcohol. (laughs) So that's the first thing. Um, The second is that Oscar has taken over this bar from his dad and his his father is no longer living and he's now running the bar and it represents his anchor to the town. Mm-hmm. The fact that, and this will become very significant later, there's other things Oscar could have done with his life. He could have left, he could have found his own path but instead he's followed in his dad's footsteps and taken over his dad's business. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is the fact that the the bar, as it was decorated when they were kids and his father was running it, had sort of wild western murals all over the place and was all set out like a very uh, traditional American rural bar and it's got a very cowboy theme to it absolutely yeah and oscar has tried to update it but not the whole place he's built a, a sort of wooden slatted wall across the middle of it the half that he's using he's updated and made look more modern and and like something that's kind of imitating a new york cocktail bar and the back end of it is effectively walled-off memories. I think one of his friends also, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember one of his friends specifically mentioning that he ran out of money when he was doing the renovations, and that's why that part of the that section of the bar is closed hmm. off. Indeed. It also implies that he's not maybe not doing so well in this whole uh in his local pub business absolutely that too and also the fact that that is not something that he admits to straight away immediately Mm -hmm. tells you something about oscar's character that he would rather present something in a defensive this is you know he's like we don't really need all of that space that's why i walled it off so he's making up reasons that he did something because he doesn't want to admit to the real reason that he did something and that is going to come back and bite us in the ass later definitely also um going back to your original question alex with the um the actual like physical space represents 
the the character, I think, and we'll probably get to that, but I think um, Gloria and Oscar's houses, like where they actually live, is a better example oh, yeah. of that than the bar. Yeah, I mean, you can go to that now if you'd like. Okay. Um, well, when Gloria first – okay, so she she arrives in her old hometown, presumably to like either her parents or some relative's house, and you know she – goes in the house is completely empty there's no furniture there's no carpet on the floor there's pretty much nothing um and she mentions that she's uh, pretty much sequestered herself into one room of the house because it's the best place where she can get wi-fi for free without having to pay for it um she's like eleanor shellstop well this wife plus your wi-fi is way better than my neighbor's exactly but um you know she pretty much uh she pretty much has nothing at that point they mentioned several times that she's broke she has been out of work for at least a year possibly more than that um so she doesn't really have her own funds she has a place she has quite literally just a roof over her head and that's about it um it's a a fresh start but it's barren. totally just completely barren and she can't seem to manage to put anything in it except for just like her couple of bags and her laptop and her and her phone. She buys an air mattress, like one of those inflatable beds, and like it's days before she even manages to get the thing inflated and like set up in the middle of the room because she keeps falling asleep and she falls asleep like sitting up propped up against the wall or she mm. falls asleep on the floor. And notably Compare when she that- wakes up she's in pain because her neck mm-hmm. has been like resting against something which it shouldn't have. That's a, a nice touch. Another yeah, nice touch exactly. is that when she actually goes to sleep on the fully inflated airbed, when she wakes up, it has deflated yeah. because airbeds are <laughs> shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're terrible and they leak right. and they're awful. Yeah. yeah. But that actually the constantly waking up in pain, that's I found that quite significant because that imitates the way that you you curl yourself mentally around memories you don't want to look at and you get yourself into all kinds of twisted positions in your thoughts and your understanding of things because you don't want to face the the thing that is right there obstructing your vision there are a few other little things okay. about um, Gloria's house as well. The fact that they are deliberately vague about a number of things. She says it's her parents' house, but we don't see them. We never hear from them. I think they're dead. I, well, that's, they dead? that's the thing. I, I got the impression that they've either moved away and she doesn't have, anything, have much to do with them anymore, mm-hmm. or they've died and left her this house. She said it's not being rented out at the moment. So yeah. that means that it's not... It's not a family home anymore. She's not going back to a house that she remembers particularly fondly. Everything about the uh, the supposed safe base that she's going back to is cold and empty, and it's not hostile. So she's at least safe, like you said, Maya. She's got a roof over her head. That might be it, but at least she has that. So it's almost like she's going back to a place of complete zero. Hopefully, yeah. to be able to build herself back up again. Blank canvas. Yeah, yeah. It's like she, yeah, she's resetting. Definitely. Like I said, I was not sure they really ever say explicitly if they have moved away or if they passed away. Oscar definitely mentions um, what happened to his parents. You know, his father passed. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry, and and then she blurts out something 
that really kind of gets to him where she says, uh, oh, that must have been really hard on your mother. It's like my mother died years ago. Like you were you were there. You, you went were to her, her funeral. funeral. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So they make it clear that his his folks are gone. Um, but, yeah, Gloria's backstory is a little bit more mm. vague and probably um, probably with good reason. Either she doesn't want to remember them or they just wanted to leave that up to the audience to kind of fill in the blanks. It seems like she's abandoned big chunks of her life that she just uh, can't remember. Uh, that I would yeah. often associate that with medication. I um, know someone who, who uh, large chunks of their life are effectively gone for them because they were medicated throughout, and that always felt tragic to me. See, I look at that in a slightly different way. One of the reasons that I find Gloria very identifiable and very sympathetic to me personally is the the structure of her life, which has resulted in her owning very little. The fact that she can fit everything she owns in these three suitcases, the fact that there is nothing in her house, the fact that there is nothing in Tim's apartment that speaks of her living there at all... My childhood experience was a lot of moving around. And when I grew up and had more of a choice about how I lived my life, I continued to move around a lot, to never stay in one place for more than a year or two, to never stay in the same job for more than a year or two. And that that feeling of having things in your past that you just simply don't think of as being any use anymore. So you put them in a box and you put them away... And sometimes it's because they make you feel ashamed. Sometimes it's because they make you feel sad because you don't have them anymore. But for whatever reason, that sense of of rootlessness, of, of having nothing to anchor you in one place. And so you don't really have anything solid to jump off from to go anywhere. There's nothing tying you down. Yeah. And you're pretty much free to go whenever whenever you want, which... In Gloria's case, is probably a good thing for her because that means she can just, you know, if things don't work out, she could, she's just free to go. Yeah, she can just you see, that's, leave whenever. That's <laughs> the flip side. You drift a lot. Mm-hmm. And you don't really form a lot of lasting um, impressions, which I, <laughs> she's, uh, she, she kind of does that with Oscar. She kind of all but forgets about him. And it's... Uh, uh, he he makes it clear at one point that he's been following her work. He was reading her. Um, she was writing for like an, an online magazine or, or something. And, uh, you know, he followed her writing. He mentions that she was always a great writer in school. So he's obviously followed her career quite a bit. And she's just everything about him for her is like just a big void it's like there's nothing to really like (laughs) like she vaguely remembers who he is but he seems to think that there's some bigger connection there and maybe there was Mm. but as like she doesn't even matter to him at all Mm. or he doesn't matter to her at all yeah he actually seems to think quite highly of her and Mm. there's there's several times when uh (sighs) this also reflects on how he felt about her when they were younger uh, he considers that her life was quite interesting in comparison to his. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But and he was... admires her for being able to to leave and go to the big city and, and do other things. Mm. But also, if you look at her expressions when he says the things he says to her and does the things he does, she seems vaguely surprised 
that he remembers her so strongly and that he he has such a an apparently positive recollection of who she is. She reminds me a little bit of Diane Nguyen in Bojack. Oh, so much. Yeah. So especially season 5. Yeah. Yeah, when she's got that wreck of a house. Yeah. Question two, how is Gloria characterised in the bar once it's closing time and she and Oscar hang out with Garth and Joel? Garth is Tim Blake Mil- uh, Nelson uh, from uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Joel is uh, Austin Stowell, someone I haven't seen anywhere else. So so how does Gloria act then? It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> By all means, divulge. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of complicated because this is kind of the first time where she's, like, she's... she kind of acts a little bit more relaxed, but you also know, like, mm, like as soon as she walks into the bar, she's looking over behind the counter at all the liquor in the back. You know, like, that's constantly where her focus is going. She's like, oh, God, here I am again. I'm in another bar and, you know, probably feels a little bit of guilt for for doing that. But also she's trying to start over. So she's trying to relax and hang with the boys, have beer with them. Yeah, whatever. She kind of immediately latches on to Joel and kind of drops a, a not so subtle hint of like, oh, they never introduced the most the the best looking guy in the in the crowd. So there's a little bit of an attraction going on with them. Joel tries to kiss her at one point, and Oscar like loses it. He really like goes off. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Well, like she's trying to relax and hang and be one of the boys, but there's this other dynamic with Oscar going on that she's not really aware of yet. Because there's there's definitely, like, it almost feels like there's a hierarchy going on where Oscar is kind of like, this is my place, this is my bar, you're drinking my beer, therefore, you guys all have to act a certain way, and that's going to carry throughout the, the rest of the film, which we'll get into. So they're and kind of like apes are... gathered around the watering hole, and every time an ape yeah. comes sniffing around her, Oscar just goes in and goes, oh, oh, oh. Hmm. Yeah, he starts yeah. beating, like, almost, almost literally beating his chest. He's he's really, like, he chests up to Joel, like, hey, what, what are you doing, man? Like, come on. Yeah. And then he, yeah, t- kind of throws a, a tantrum. So be it that it is presented or he he puts it forward in a sense of leave her alone, don't, she's having fun, don't mess with that. Don't, don't, don't take advantage space. of her. Yeah, exactly. But the fact that Gloria kind of then responds with no 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 it's 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 all fine we're just having fun everybody's okay that makes it clear that oscar is um that that defending of her is not something that she wants or is inviting of yeah she doesn't need him to to come to her, her defense and yet he does it anyway which is which again is a, is a bit odd when it's like what well, it's disproportionate to what their relationship is at this point. Yeah. Absolutely. If he was her best mate ever and they'd fallen into each other's arms, it's like a, you know, <laughs> I, he, she was, he was her childhood best mate and they'd lost touch. 
then it would feel more appropriate. But because she barely remembers Uh him, it's Mm. as though they've barely met. Yeah, exactly. There is one moment in the bar, actually, that I thought was done really neatly. It's quite subtle. And after her initial looking at the, the ever, all the booze behind the bar and the expression on her face that makes it quite clear that this is going to be a bit of a strain for her, there's oh. a point where there's a beer on the bar and Oscar's talking to her and her attention is just focused on the beer bottle and the sound gets pulled out a little bit. So it's almost like she's not really paying attention to anything else. And that felt quite, it's, it's a brief moment, but it felt quite realistic for how an addiction can hold your focus in a moment when you would really rather your focus was somewhere else. I always go back to uh, John Spencer from the West Wing, the late, great John Spencer, who played Leo McGarry, the uh, chief of staff at Butler's White House, who was an alcoholic. Is that why you drank and took drugs? I drank and took drugs because I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. How long did it take you to get cured? I'm not cured. You don't get cured. I haven't had a drink or a pill in six and a half years. Which isn't to say I won't have one tomorrow. What would happen if you did? I don't know but probably a nightmare the likes of which both our fathers experienced, and me too. So after six and a half years, you're still not allowed to have a drink? The problem is, I don't want a drink. I want ten drinks. Are things that bad? No. Then why? Because I'm an alcoholic. It is frightening that a person could be so <clears throat> at the mercy of a substance. A substance which gets banded around as just, you know, absolutely legitimate party um, ingredient and social lubricant. It is the thing that everyone requires to relax. But this thing that is required for everyone is deadly to the, the, a certain type of person. Mm. It will, it's destructive. Yeah, and it can be a poison for pretty much anyone very quickly. There's another moment uh, when they first get to the bar that I really liked because it kind of, it's sort of the first indication that Oscar has some uh, some anger issues, some like serious anger issues. And it's, it's again, a very subtle thing, but it, it pretty much follows directly after they're in the car. And he's like, you don't remember going to my mother's funeral? Like, oh, uh, you were there, you know, like you, you saw it. So then they get to the bar and then suddenly Gloria starts having all this recall about the Western part of the bar, the whole cowboy thing. And like, Oh my God, you used to have this over there. And I remember there was this, like, she keeps picking out these little details and he goes, Oh yeah. Good memory. Hmm. It's like, it's just a subtle little dig at her. Like, Oh, you, you, you don't remember my mom's death, but you remember like all these, very specific details that like I just was like, ooh, like I didn't catch that when I first watched it, but on the rewatch I was like, oh that's that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of an FU well, right there. If if you look at how he acts 
shifts when she starts to talk about anything to do with the past. He's on edge the whole time. He keeps it masked pretty well, but he is on edge because if she's remembering some things but not others, he can never be certain what she's going to remember. Mm. It seems like everything that was quite emotional and upsetting for her, she has an ability to just blank, like Wolverine. That she's, her brain scars over and, and so she can sort of, it's a, it's a good way of not dealing with the shit that happens whenever she gets drunk. Because if it does result in destructive fallout, she can get told off for it and then forget that. I'll go you one more. She drinks to cover up the memories that she doesn't want to think about. Hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's and to hide those, those emotional distressing moments. Because yes. your brain can only heal so much of it. It also leaves her open to the sort of thing that's that starts happening where it's like if you have such a bad memory, if you are if your alcoholism is causing you to have these lapses in what you can recall, Oscar latches onto that and says, I can take advantage of that. That's that's his end to say, like, I can use that. And cause her to question what she remembers and whether she remembers it accurately yep, at all. Exactly, exactly. It's where he starts gaslighting her. And also, if you look at the surroundings as well, the there's a... I don't quite know how to, to summarise it, but that, that kind of environment, that kind of culture, that replicates what I know of kind of northern english culture as well where you don't talk about the emotional stuff and it's considered perfectly normal to mute all that with alcohol if if you don't want to deal with it and and nobody wants you to deal with it anyway nobody wants you talking about your grief and your your shame and your sadness they want you to be quiet and if that necessitates you going into a corner and drinking then go for it Uh, Anne Hathaway being cast as this character is an excellent choice. I was just thinking that Kristen Bell would be able to play the same character fantastically and brilliantly, possibly a bit more funny as well, but that may not necessarily be better for the film. But um, Anne Hathaway is classically beautiful. She has that Julia Roberts, like, gorgeous thing Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn. There was a point, by the way, when Audrey Hepburn was still alive, Julia Roberts was at her peak, and Anne Hathaway was just coming into uh, her, um, you know, acting abilities. They could have played a mother, daughter, and grandmother. It would have been brilliant. Uh. Um, But, yeah, uh, Hathaway is straight-up beautiful. And as such, you wouldn't imagine from looking at her that she could be suffering from this level of... uh, Dependency and this level of, uh, I suppose, obnoxiousness if, if she gets to, to that level of, of destructiveness. <laughs> yeah. It's very easy to go, well, she's just a gorgeous party girl, as opposed, you know, because you, you'd expect that shit from um, the woman who plays Calamity Jane in Deadwood, for example. <laughs> Fantastic <laughs> actress again. Yeah. But, like, she, she looks like a walking wreck, especially as she plays that drunk. But the way that uh, Hathaway plays it, again, as with how it's been shown all the way through, this seems like a habit that you could very easily ignore for years. I think both her and Jason Sudeikis, like they're, they're those are both great casting choices. Absolutely. And part of the reason why is because they're just as actors, they're so inherently likable, like as people it bleeds in like they can't help, but 
that part of them can't help but come out in their performance. You see them, you like them right away, and it kind of helps along with sympathizing with them and understanding and relating to what they do. It also, the, the role falls into a category of roles that are historically very underused, but is starting to become more prominent, and that's a good thing, and that is the flawed female lead. Mm. because it's a bit too commonplace for lead women, especially in like rom-coms and and that type of genre. And superhero films. To be, yeah, to be perfect. Like not not in an incredibly invulnerable kind of way, but just in a, she doesn't fuck up, ever. Not really. Bad things happen to her, but they are so far from being her fault, and she copes with them admirably. And you know what? If that's all you get, then that gives this incredibly dangerous template for women to feel like they have to live up to, like they feel like they have to cope with everything because all of our role models are strong and reliable and superwomen. Yeah, exactly. And that they have to be modest all the time too. I mean, Gloria totally downplays her own writing ability. Like you know, Oscar is is praising her to the heavens. Oh my God, she was such a great writer. She won all the awards, and she's like, Oh no, 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 I I wasn't that good. I wasn't that good. Like she's got to play that humility too. She can't she can't be proud of her own work. She can't sing her own praises that much. But what what Anne Hathaway manages to get across with Gloria is that if you if you do that, if you do that humility, if you do that kind of just allowing yourself to be one of the boys and not be emotional and not remember the things that hurt you and uh, you know play the party girl 24/7 there are going to be repercussions mm-hmm. Robin Wygat by the way was uh, the lady who played Calamity Jane so you don't remember anything we talked about last night huh I got really melodramatic didn't I well I uh... Told me that you weren't really on a vacation, that you've been looking for a job for a year, and you've been living with your boyfriend, Tim, and uh, didn't work out. And since you didn't have any money, you decided to move back here for a little while. For the record, I figured out that you were broke on my own, so you don't have to feel bad about it. Oh, well, congratulations. Is there anything else? I told you that if you wanted to give me a hand at the bar, you're more than welcome. You know, make a little money while you were staying here. What did I say? (laughs) You said yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have asked you when you're drunk That's bad timing by me I, No, I just, we were just what are you talking about? Stuff. This is such a nice thing to do But, I mean, do you need help um, at the bar? If this mess keeps going on, yeah Yeah, I'll definitely need help at the bar People gotta drink The next morning, after Gloria walks home through a children's playground uh, There is a sighting of a kaiju That uh, is at this big walking lizard beast in Seoul, Korea. Now, there's actually a sighting at the very beginning of the film, 25 years before the events of this, uh, and it's it's walking through a... Uh, it's a heavily populated city area, and this kaiju just marches through, so it's all over the news. Um, why might this be one of the most realistic depictions of kaiju attacks? Because it is, I believe. You can't really see much, mm-hmm. for a start. It hits YouTube before it hits the real news. Mm-hmm. For another, 
it just marches straight through without really having any care to what it's bumping into. It's just kind of like it just walks through things. It doesn't see stuff that's there. Which gives you a so, sense of scale as, as in, mm-hmm. you know, to, to a kaiju, it, 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 it should. Although it's yeah. actually questioned by Tim Blake Nelson's character, Garth, who says, you know, it didn't even look down. It just sort of, you know, walks through mm-hmm. uh, causing destruction. And if it was, you know, put yourself in the mind of this kaiju, you would see buildings in your way and you would move to avoid them rather than bashing straight through them, surely. One thing about that big, that intro bit, by the way, where it cuts from the, the kaiju to modern-day New York, mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple of things regarding toys. Mm-hmm. The girl who's looking for her doll at the very beginning mm-hmm. kind of sets up that theme of avatars, yeah. People having little things that represent themselves. And when it cuts from Seoul 25 years ago to New York now, it looks like a model village. When it zooms in on the apartment <laughs> block, it looks <laughs> like it's made out of cardboard. <laughs> There's a neat, uh, blackly humorous moment where it's very melodramatic music, and then she just sort of opens the door and slides in, drunk, uh, to to show her quite a mundane, uh, way too normalised moment. Um, but another thing is that much like uh, the, uh, I'm going to say mishandled Gareth Edwards Godzilla from 2014, this kaiju is depicted as a uh, natural disaster in that a hurricane doesn't stop and check itself and go, I've got to go round these buildings. It just passes straight through. Uh, and so that's what this kaiju effectively is. It's a, it's a natural disaster happening overseas and it's devastating, kind of, this uh, place. And, and there's a big to-do about it and Technically, the entire world should change. That's the thing, though. It does. It changes massively, and they cover it with two or three throwaway lines, which I really, really like. There's a point where Gloria is talking about the fact that there's just this one monster and it only attacks soul, and that as a result of it turning up... The whole world's gone into ceasefire. Wars have stopped. Everybody's working together to try and work out what this thing is. And that makes her sad that this is the only one. It's only attacking Seoul because she says eventually people are going to realise that and they're not going to care anymore. And that's just going to go back to the way they were before. That sort of does start to happen too because, I mean, when you see the continued footage, it's like uh, the people living there, they're still there. They haven't evacuated. They're not like... You know, it's not empty city blocks anymore. People are going about business as usual. Mm. So it's almost like they've become so used to this thing just showing up that they don't even really pay it that much mind anymore. They just let it go through and they're still filming it with their uh, with their iPhones. And, you know, shops are still open. Bars are still open. So it's it's they've kind of gotten to that point by the end of the film mm. well they work out the pattern they work out the time it shows up they work out the the radius that it it walks around and doesn't go beyond they have an air raid siren that starts kicking in to tell everybody to get back to a safe distance and do you know what that really made me think of living with an alcoholic you work out Okay, what times are they drinking? How do I need to behave when they've had a drink? How far back do I need to be to stay safe? You accommodate. It's a gradual process, but you learn to accommodate for the natural disaster that you're sharing a house with. 
Oscar gives Gloria a job as a waitress in his bar, as, as we've said already, but then he brings her first a TV the next day, then a yep. futon, and later more household furnishings to set up at her, this empty house of hers. So what does this achieve within the film? Because there's some Oscar and Gloria stuff to handle before we come back to the kaiju. I, I wrote this down somewhere. Uh, do you guys know who Stefan Molyneux is? Nope. Okay, Stefan Molyneux is one of these infuriating guys who gets on YouTube and, and uh, complains about how women don't actually like nice guys. And the reason why we have so many problems in the world is because women keep marrying and having children with guys who are assholes because they don't actually like nice guys. Oscar is basically that. He's this dude who thinks he's a super nice guy. And he's not as nice as he thinks he is. So, on one hand, Oscar giving her all this furniture is his way of saying, like, look at how nice I am. Look at how generous I'm being to you. With the um, assumption that now that he has done these nice things, Gloria owes him something. Mm. Like, you owe me because I have been nice to you. Unfortunately, this is a mindset for a lot of guys out there. Um, And I don't want to say all. I'm just saying for a certain type of man, especially that type who thinks he's one of the nice ones in air quotes, that's that's kind of like that expectation that you are now going to give me something in return. So he's not being generous because he necessarily cares about Gloria. It's it's because he expects something back. If you attach conditions to your nice guy behavior, there is your sign. If you, um, if you have to go around and tell everybody what a nice guy you are, there's your sign. Exactly. <laughs> you know? but, mm-hmm. it, but the, no, no, it's true. <laughs> uh, again, it's slippery slope. The things he brings her initially are things she really needs. That, the, the TV is ridiculously huge and, and incredibly overblown for the size of house that she's got. But she needs a window to the outside world. So far, she's been completely cut off and she's actually operating on a time delay because she doesn't pick up on what's been happening until it gets uploaded to YouTube and she wakes up after whatever drunken spree she's been in. Um, So that TV gives her a a direct window into what's going outside, which is what starts to bring the consequences back to her so that she can see them in a safe environment first before she goes out and starts to deal with them. He brings her the bed at the point where the airbed's given up the ghost and she desperately, Mm -hmm. desperately needs something comfortable to sleep on. So to start off with, uh, this this nurturing that he's bringing to her is welcome and she is, is very grateful for it, but it intensifies and there is a point later on where it becomes almost terrifying Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it, like it starts it starts kind of right away, though, like as soon as he brings that stuff, it's like uh, he, that, I think that's when he offers her the job and he's like, oh, well, you know, I, I brought this stuff for you. So come work for me now, which is a way for her to be around him more often. It's a way for him to, to be able to see her on a continual basis and almost all the time. And it also is one more thing that is going to, you know. Hey, I gave you this job, so kind of you, you kind of owe me for that too. Um, and it kind of it distracts her totally from a conversation that she's in the middle of with Tim. Like he FaceTimes her from New York. It's like, what is going on? I haven't heard from you. I'm worried. 
are you getting help? Like, what's what's going on there? And she just ditches him in the middle of the conversation because Oscar rolls in with all this stuff and says, come on, we got to go to work now. Leaving him floundering on Skype, mm-hmm. which is the title of my autobiography. Uh, the- <laughs> floundering on Skype, the Alex Shaw story. <laughs> Would you care to stay till sunrise? It's completely your decision. It's just that going home is such a ride, such a ride. Going home is such a ride. Going home is such a ride. Going home is such a lonely lonely ride. Considering that Gloria is back here to take stock of her life and to change things about it. It seems like she's trying to change. What does her working in a bar achieve for her new aspirations? Like the house, it is an acceptance that she's going to have to start at the bottom of the ladder. Go on. Working as a waitress in a cocktail bar is not an uncommon (laughs) pastime for people who are pursuing creative careers but haven't hit the mark that they want to hit yet. That much is true. It is a steady job. So she has at least made an improvement from the past year when she was simply out of work and presumably living off of whatever ends Tim was making, including, you know, living in his apartment and all the rest of it. So it is steady work. And it's not, it's not a terrible situation. It's just maybe not the most ideal one for her to be in if she's trying to get over an alcohol addiction. Yeah, she's surrounding herself with the very substance that's been... With her own vices. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And arguably, Oscar and his friends could kind of be seen as vices as well. As the film progresses... And considering how Joel and the other friends in the bar behave towards Gloria, it can be argued that they become vices for her as well. Hmm. They're definitely enablers. Mm-hmm. There's like- a, I, I feel like at some point we're, we've been talking around it, but at some point we're going to s- kind of hone in on that word toxic. Yeah. Hmm. And how it relates to a, a kind of inity. And I feel like we're getting there, because I have a lot to say about it. (laughs) Indeed. Just to underline the fact that Gloria is working in this particular bar, and how that's actually a positive thing for her, is that she traded on opening up the back part, the cowboy part of the bar, for coming and working here. That was her deal with Oscar, that she would come and work for him if he agreed to uncover what was in the back of the bar. Those memories that have been hidden, that have been suppressed, she wants to uncover them. And in a way, that's what the monster represents. Something that comes and stomps through the middle of your brain and the middle of your life and says, you're not getting away from this until you face it. And she is doing and that is a positive element of her herself, in a way. The part of her that is still whole and wants to be better. 
another upshot of her working in this bar is that because the way it's organized, Oscar keeps him and his drinking buddies up until in the morning. She's not getting sleep, not natural, healthy sleep. She doesn't, I can't remember a single time she sleeps in an actual bed in this whole film. She's like Leon. She's, she sleeps sitting up. And so she'll, she'll go home at 8.05 in the morning and like you know, pass out on the sofa and wake up a few hours later aching like crazy. And not sleeping is a really great way of lowering your uh, ability to cope. Absolutely. And this is one of the key things about substance use, is that whether or not the substance itself harms you as much as it might harm other people because they do have different effects on different people and different metabolisms and not everybody is going to be impacted in the same way but if you're using them to the extent that they prevent you from taking proper care of yourself that is going to have an effect that is going to have an impact So the next morning at 8 o'clock, she uh, goes through the same park again and stops to have a uh, lengthy phone conversation with with Tim, who, if you remember, she left uh, flailing on Skype yesterday. And she, you know, waves her hand around, scratches her head, and then stomps home. And then watches... She throws her phone away also. Ah, as in, you know, this community... Mm, that's perfect! I had forgotten that, but I'm going to ask yep, a question she- on communication later. Uh, but so yeah, she throws her phone away and then stomps home and then sees on the news the kaiju uh, has reappeared in Seoul at the same time and is standing around scratching its head and appears to be talking on a phone, which it then invisibly throws away. She freaks out and does the Groundhog Day testing thing of, of running back to the park and holding her arms out and then holding them out in a Y and through observation the creature does the same so she works out really quickly that she is manifesting herself as the creature or at least that she's controlling it yes Uh, it's appearing when she enters the park in the mornings and then when she leaves the park it disappears but when she walks around it matches her movements so let's boil down the core message of this film why the kaiju and what does this mean For me, it's in what Garth says about it not looking at its surroundings and not reacting to the buildings and the people that are in its immediate vicinity, but just stomping through and causing chaos in its wake. Again, like a hurricane. Yeah. But this is what trauma does. This is what past trauma that has become embedded in your brain does in your life whenever you react to it whether it's through a a repressed memory that you don't want to have and therefore you're engaging in unhealthy coping mechanisms to work your way around it or whether it is a more obvious kind of PTSD when you're behaving in a certain way because of past trauma you're not reacting to the circumstances that are immediately around you you're reacting to something that's not there not then and therefore what you're doing is not 
appropriate to the situation that you're in. And that's what Gloria's been doing this whole time. Her drinking, her avoidance, her maintaining an empty life are all reactions to something that happened a long time ago that she's repressed. It's a little bit of her, like, taking ownership of her emotions, too, when she finally realizes, oh, I actually control this thing. Like, that's giving her a little bit of her agency back, mm. I feel like. Yeah, and the fact that she she tests the theory with very intentional, very deliberate movements, the fact that her basic nature, which is of somebody who is both creative and anxious which are characteristics of people who notice patterns before everybody else does. She draws up a map, too, of, of like, the playground and how far away it is from Seoul. Like, she has this whole little, uh, it almost looks like a police investigator's map with, like, lines on it. And, you know, exactly, it's got the string connecting the two places, and she works out the square footage compared to the, from the playground compared to this city block of, um, Seoul, where this is happening. So she's investigating in a little bit too, which goes along with what she's been doing in her writing life, which is she's presumably a journalist. So that uh, she gets a, a way of taking back her creativity by doing all this investigative work. This is something she's actually good at. God, I was making a. I was being facetious at the beginning when I compared it to the Hangover, but effectively the Hangover is them investigating what happened the night before, mm. and then there's a, uh, a screaming naked uh, Japanese man leaping out of the uh, uh, trunk and hitting them with a crowbar, and it's hilarious. <laughs> <clears throat> a little of Ken Jeong goes a long way. <clears throat> I really liked the concept that they wake up the morning after, and it's obvious that all this terrible stuff's gone down. And they have to walk backwards through last night to try and piece together what's happened and and where Doug is. It's just that the execution of it is, oh, God. Exactly. The premise is fine, but how it's executed, uh, maybe not so much. Yeah, it's pretty reprehensible. Anyway. But it's it's okay to, it's okay to like a movie yes. if you like the hangover. If you like the hangover, that's fine. But bridesmaids is so much better. <laughs> yes. Anyway. Oh man, leaps and bounds better. <laughs> anyway, uh, so so uh, I've kind of skipped over a bit here to ask another question. So I'm going to have to make it clearer uh, in between. She shows off to her friends that she is controlling the kaiju with this, you know, brilliant little groin pointy dance. And then uh, Oscar paces over to her to to test the theory further, and a giant robot appears. Again, not in the playground, but in Seoul, Korea, and they get to witness it live on the news. Is this the point where she slaps him? No. Ah. That's later. That comes later. At yeah. the moment, they don't know he is also appearing in. Soul, she's just realizing that her movements are hurting people. Okay. So, but to jump forwards a little bit because there's a lot of the this part of the film is very technical based on on her working out about the whole kaiju thing. Uh, once things get going and it, and uh, she ends up slapping Oscar. As the kaiju slapping the robot, and that turns up as a meme, he watches it 35 times or so. He is effectively being embarrassed publicly uh, across the world, even though no one knows it's him. 
he's you know he smiles in this really creepy way uh, but it clearly gets to him and he then very deliberately as a result of this starts drinking whiskey gets extremely hostile with garth but it's in this insidious kind of way where he's just sort of sitting there smirking relaxing tossing out you know what are you doing in the bathroom there you, you, you fucking junkie throws him out of the bar calmly and then roars at him carry on it's a it's a great scene but it's just oh it's very uncomfortable it is very uncomfortable and i think this is the point where you start to look at oscar and think he is really not a good guy because as soon as gloria or anyone really threatens oscar or goes after his insecurities and one of the big ones you see very clearly from the slap being memed to death uh, is one of his big insecurities is being mocked or laughed at. Yeah. He completely loses it and starts being a D bag to all of his friends and everybody around him. And yeah, he very subtly, you know, just kind of, again, takes a subtle dig at him. Ah, yeah. What are you doing in the bathroom? And, and, it's kind of passive-aggressive, then giving way to full-on-aggressive. Extremely passive-aggressive. We all know what you're doing in there. You don't have to hide it. And I, I don't think he ever fully – he may fully come around at one point to saying, we know you're doing lines in there. Mm-hmm. But it takes a long, long time for him to get there. And he really is – he's digging at Garth to say it himself. Mm-hmm. Well, it serves no purpose. Garth's not hurting anybody apart from himself. It serves no purpose other than I have control over you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And- I can control your behavior. I can make you do and say whatever I want because I feel it's, it's that whole mindset of I feel insecure. Therefore, I immediately have to wrest control back to me. Yeah. And it's that is paralleled by how he's trying to control Gloria and what it comes mm-hmm. down to is what you referred to earlier Maya it's that toxic masculinity that says <laughs> that the worst thing that can possibly happen to him is to make him feel smaller than he already does to be how he feels humiliated like you said Alex no one knows that's him no one cares but to him who already feels, and it's it's not just that he feels small, it's that he feels small and he feels like he shouldn't feel small. He should be the big man on campus. He should be the, the main guy. He runs the bar. He's his dad now. Well, he's also just <laughs> found out that he's this massive robot who should be affecting all kinds of change in Seoul, Korea. Yeah. And the robot's a laughing stock. It's been slapped. Absolutely. People and he don't can't, respect the robot. He can't bear the idea that he doesn't have his respect. He doesn't have the admiration that he thinks he ought to. And more to the point, somebody else does. Side note. I've completely skipped over and forgotten this point. Uh, Gloria goes using Oscar's connections to talk to a Korean man to uh, finds out uh, the phraseology required to using the kaiju apologize. 
to the people of Korea, writing in the sand with the kaiju's finger, I'm sorry, it was a mistake, I won't do it again. And uh, the people suddenly now love the kaiju because they, 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 they see something of intelligence, they see something uh, that can regret, and they respect the kaiju. Mm. And this pisses off Oscar even more, which is what I believe leads to the slap. Yeah. There's yes, a reason, I think, that Gloria is a monster and Oscar is a robot. Mm. Because she destructive though she may be accidentally is true to her nature and he is faking it from sun up to sundown mm. or programmed mm. when i started downsizing i was the first to go oh you jerk you already knew yes ah uh, <laughs> why yeah. why didn't you tell me why are you letting me like well, I, don't, I, don't know. I, I didn't want you to think I was creepy, like I'm some sort of stalker. Oh, well, it's too late for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've been following me all these years? Of course I have. Somebody actually made it out of here and did something special for once. Hell, look what had to happen for things to get interesting around here. Giants attacking South Korea. No. I mean, you. What happens next is, uh, within the same conversation as him throwing out Garth, he is drinking from a bottle of whiskey, and Gloria isn't drinking. There's a, a, Joel is in the middle drinking a bottle of beer. I think they've now... Have they now had sex? Yes. Yeah, yes, she went to his have. house, they had sex, yeah, and that's, that's angered Oscar further. The reason Oscar's behaviour has escalated is because he works out that yeah. uh, Gloria slept with Joel. Yeah, yeah. and when she he, went uh, to him for some... Oh, sorry. He goes to the playground and, and he's kind of rampaging around the robot drunk again. Gloria and Joel show up to the playground at the same time. Yeah. Like in Joel's truck. Obviously, they have spent the night together and he works it out almost immediately. And that's when it, it gets turned up to 11. And he apologizes initially. But uh, at this stage, Gloria is not drinking she's electing not to drink so it's going to be it's one of those late night things and she's not drinking he's drinking from a bottle of whiskey he opens up a beer bottle sets it down and orders her to drink why that's another way for him to control her he works out a way to get gloria to do whatever he wants because he can always hold over her head if you don't do what i ask you to do I'm going to stomp through the playground again and I'm going to kill all of those people that you felt bad about. I I'm a robot. I have no feelings. I have no remorse. So I'm going to go and do that. So you'll drink the drink or else Hmm. classic, classic abusive behavior. Absolutely. And this is, there's, there's two things about this that this is when Oscar crosses the line for me. Like he's, there is no redemption after this. Because one, he's doing this because he feels like he has to bring her down to his level. And two, this is do it or I'll hurt the kids. Do it or I'll hurt the dog. Absolutely. That's why I say classic abusive uh, relationship. There's nothing else in his mind except I need to control this person and do whatever is necessary to do that. And I don't care who I hurt in the process. I don't care if a bunch of people die on the other side of the world. Like, what do I care about them? They're on the other side of the world. Ah, they don't matter. 
but you'll drink the drink because I say so. And also, that is going to help along with the control because then she's going to be drunk and she's not going to remember things. It's this downward spiral that she's going to go on that makes it easier for him to manipulate her. Absolutely. And it's coupled with the line that makes me want to smack him clean in his mouth, which is, please know that I'm only being this pushy because deep down I know you want it. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah. <sighs> Screw that, man. She was trying to stop. <laughs> Some of my most, uh, the most uncomfortable moments in my career have been when I've been with uh, work colleagues at a, a drink, uh, a, a night out. And they've in there was one time I, I recall very significantly they found out that I just wasn't drinking that night and I, I don't, don't drink normally. And they were like, right, we are making a couple of them. Were like, we are making it our job tonight to get you to drink. We want you pissed. And I hate it when people do that. It it's was a like choice. A, it was a game you don't for have them. To. It, it was yeah. a challenge for them. They, they had to get me drunk and, and, and nothing else would. Uh, I, I was just ch- trying to change the subject, trying to move to other people, just trying to do something that wasn't them pushing drinks into my hand. They would not take, yeah, no, for an answer. That was oh, deeply dear. uncomfortable. One of my, the work dues I went on, uh, one of my managers got off his face and ended up sort of slumped over beside me like sort of leaning over and saying, yeah, I know that your father used to drink just like my father used to drink. And I oh, know God. that you're stronger than your dad and he, you don't want to be like him and I know that I'm weaker than you and I just don't have it in me. And I was like, oh, fucking kill me. Jesus Christ, you are inferring all of this negative shit of, oh, you think you're better than me. From that, no, I just, he was pretty much on the money insofar as I was so disgusted with my father when he was drunk that I decided at a relatively young teenage age, that ain't going to be me. I'm not doing that. And I think I may have mentioned this to him at some point when he was sober. And he had stored that away and said to himself, oh, you thought you were strong. Well, I'm not strong enough. And the bitterness that radiated off him made me ill. Why do you fear the past? You are a Sealdor's heir, not a Sealdor himself. You are not bound to his fate. The same blood flows in my veins. Your time will come. You will face the same evil, and you will defeat it. You know what's so funny is that you could almost pick out the the beer, the liquor, whatever other vices that Gloria is taking in. You can almost take it right out and put sex in its place, and the dynamic is pretty much the same thing. Like, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to tonight. Well, you're going to. Yeah, but I, I just don't feel like it. Yeah, well, you're going to or else. It's the exact same thing. And with the drink, like, sometimes you you honestly just don't feel like it. And for some reason, like, that culture of the drinking culture has kind of, and I don't know why, but it's sort of people have it in their minds that if you're not drinking, then somehow you're not having fun, which doesn't, 
Like, that doesn't necessarily follow there. You can still have fun and hang out with a bunch of your drunk friends and be completely sober and still have fun. You're probably actually laughing at all of your stupid drunk friends at that point uh, and having your own fun. But I, I think that's really fascinating that you could almost pull that aspect out of it and drop sex or really anything um, in its place. And the story wouldn't really change all that much. Mm. Um, at the point when Oscar actually made this threat, you know, unless you drink, I'm going no, And he then later says, for every uh, day that you are not here, if you go back to New York, for every day you're not here, I will take a walk through this park. I, I realized on the spot, oh, she has to take him down. Because I was thinking in superhero movie terms, like this is the treatise of the villain. Like he, he is making a threat, and it's it's he's talking about actual human lives that he can end. So if you put it in other terms, he may as well just say, "I will just drive my van through a crowded marketplace, take out forty, fifty people just walking, you know, just going about their day, and only you can stop me." Under those circumstances, she has a responsibility now to take him down and it's terrifying to be given that as just a regular person to be to have that threat made to you and they they handle it in an extremely uh, sober way in the film it it escalates from the threat in the bar which she, she then she pours the beer out and he immediately gets in his van she stops him but then he does he just run to the park? She she tries to stop him. She stands in front of the van. Yeah, but he, he gets yeah, past. I, yeah, they're yeah they're sort of racing each other to get there yeah. first. He they, drives. She runs. It's kind of ridiculous the way it, it works. And also, by the way, the the uh, the night goes really quickly in this town. It gets to eight o'clock really fast. Mm. Uh, and she confronts him at the uh, playground. Mm. He punches her using his you know superior male strength, and then stomps around the place in this scene of absolute devastation that's all going on in your head while she cries. But you can hear the screams in the background. Yeah. You can hear people that are witnessing it happen on television. You can hear from like the apartments that are around. People are screaming because they can see it happening live. It's pretty heinous. And uh, so, so now he has her. She can't leave. She has to do everything he says. Otherwise, more, this will happen again and again and again. And so something has to give. We do get a glimpse here of Oscar's house. She goes round to uh, to see him. And you were going to mention it before, Maya. Uh, so Oscar is essentially a hoarder. His house is a complete mess. There's stuff everywhere, which kind of explains why he has all of this extra furniture to keep giving to Gloria to help her furnish her house. It's because he's got all of this extra stuff and he's behaving very much like a hoarder where dirty dishes are piled up, there's food left out that's gross and there's just papers and books lying everywhere. It's just a complete disaster. It looks like a monster went through his house and messed everything up. Uh, There's also, this is something that I, again, kind of forgot from the first time I watched it, but in the rewatch, there's a very specific shot where Gloria notices a photo of Oscar as a boy and his mom, and his mom's face is scratched out. Yeah, that's terrifying. That. There's another photo yeah. as well where he's he's scrawled things on the pictures. He's 
in some way he has tried to obscure things about his childhood. He's broken and not functioning properly. Mm. Absolutely not. Like, he can't... It seems that he can't even take care of his own house. He can't take care of himself, possibly because his parents aren't there anymore. That could be a thing where he couldn't deal with the grief of them leaving, or maybe it was a complicated relationship where they were in some way abusive to him. He can't seem to cut it on his own Mm. without somebody there to monitor him and to tell him to do the dishes, pick up your stuff, put your toys away. Uh, Maybe don't hold on to this sofa that is completely dilapidated and falling apart. Mm. On the flip side, though, hoarding behaviour often goes with a sense of having to maintain a very strong control over your life. And yeah, it's not it's not almost always, untr- but often that obsessive compulsive thing that he has to hold on to everything. He can't give anything. He can't throw anything away. He can give it away to somebody else, but he can't. He can't clean up his own space. Absolutely, and knowing what we do of his past, that to me says either his parents were very controlling of him. And so he's grown up to be very controlling or the loss of his parents made him feel like he had to hang on to everything else in his life in order to prevent that from leaving. Given the other things that he does and the other behaviours that he manifests, I think he's been controlled at some point in his life. That, that seems to make more sense. Otherwise, he would not have cared that the cowboy western part of the bar was closed off. Mm. You know, he would want that to be on display as something to remind him of his dad. If he doesn't want to think about it because he was a a controlling jerk, it would make sense that he had it walled off and just didn't even want people to see it. Oscar would be pitiful if he wasn't so threatening, because especially by this point, you're you're frightened of what he might do. Well, she does pity him at this stage. When she's in the house, she he's apologetic. We can see it's not real remorse, but he is apologetic, and she takes that at face value. And she tries to do for him what Tim tried to do for her. And he's surrounded by the accumulated detritus that he's built up over the years, and he will never deal with it. But this happens at almost exactly the same time as her house, when she goes back to it, has been filled up without her knowledge, without her permission, with stuff from him. And it kind of looks like an old lady's house. Oh, yes. It's not the sort of thing that uh, a young woman in her late 20s, early 30s, would not the sort of way that she'd decorate that house. It's all second, third hand. It's old. It's kind of tatty. And it's it's clashing colors. And it's not comfortable looking. It's it's like he's moved a different house in there Mm. without asking. And it's, again, more and more control he's trying to exert. And it kind of reminded me of, um, do you remember in Labyrinth, the old junk lady keeps trying to pile Mm -hmm. stuff onto Sarah Yes. in in this sort of desperation to get to, if you look carefully in the background of that junk heap scene, there are other old junk people wandering around with Mm -hmm. all of this accumulated detritus on their backs. Mm. He's trying to make her like him. Yeah. Again, this is another bringing her down to the level that he perceives himself to be at. You have junk, you have stuff, you fill your house up wall to wall with antimacassars that you don't need, Mm. um, and you will be 
if I if I can feel like we're the same, I won't feel so small around you. Yeah. There's another bit from the part where uh, Gloria goes to his house and goes to see him. He specifically asks, did I hurt you last night? Obviously, the answer is yes. Obviously, he hurt her. And she still says no, which I just found profoundly sad that she couldn't even say, yeah, actually, you did hurt me. This may be the point. This may be before the point where he physically uh, raises his fists at her. I'm not sure if this is before or after that point because he does. Okay. So at this point, no, he has not raised his fist at her. He has not given her a black eye or, or bloodied her lip or anything like that. But the argument that they get into, the confrontation that they have, clearly has affected her and it has hurt her. And she can't even admit it. Another thing about Oscar bringing the furniture over to her place... He doesn't even deliver it himself. He gets one of his lackeys. He gets Joel to do it for him. He's controlling Joel as well, and he's displeased exactly. with Joel for sleeping with Gloria. Absolutely. And Joel, Joel. I'd, I'd like, I actually like the fact that Joel is not a rescuing hero. Joel is not somebody who's going to save her from this situation. He's useless. He's Oscar's mouthpiece. He's a Muppet who doesn't even really know how to read a situation. Yeah. He's kind of another form of toxic masculinity, in my opinion. He is a generally nice guy, but he's completely ineffective. He's the nice guy who stands back and doesn't intervene when he sees something bad going down. Mm -hmm. He's the one that sits back, doesn't say a word, doesn't even speak up and say, you know what, Oscar, lay off of her. Why don't you just lay off? I think maybe he tries to do it once and is immediately shut down, but a better friend and a stronger person, a stronger character not character as in a character in this film, but if his principles were stronger, Mm. would have stood up again and said, knock it off, you're being a jerk, stop talking to Gloria that way, stop talking to Garth that way, how dare you call him out in front of all of us, That's, that's not cool. He went with Oscar to the park the couple of times that he's gone stomping around, very easily could have run in there and pushed him out and just said, nope, you're out of the way, you're not doing this while I'm here. And he doesn't. He has absolutely no... He's completely ineffectual. In the garbage dump of toxic masculinity that is Big Bang Theory, he is Johnny Galecki's Leonard Hofstadter, the uh, enabler. Uh, We could go on and on about Big Bang Theory, but uh, I would say two things. One, if you're watching it and think it's funny you really need to re-examine that because it's poison. And two, there's better people than us to to talk about it. Pop Culture Detective talks about the adorkable misogyny of mm. Big Bang Theory on uh, YouTube that is worth watching. You might even not have known quite how bad it actually is. It's pretty bad, folks. One of the roles that Leonard plays on the show is as the guy who excuses and enables the sexism of his male friends. And you know that deep down inside, Howard's a really nice guy. Cut the crap. You set this up, didn't you? Yes. She's a hooker, isn't she? A prostitute, yes. You already gave her the money? Yes. Thank you. He might roll his eyes at his friend's antics, but he never seriously challenges their behavior. But I'd like to get lost in Herbermuda Triangle. 
That's not helpful. Then I won't say I'd like to cover three quarters of her surface area. <laughs> Are we done? <laughs> not yet. This is fun. Oh, I know. I'd let her free my willy. He's got two videos specifically about the Big Bang Theory, and they're both absolutely worth a watch. I'm lucky that I've actually never seen a single episode of Big Bang Theory because I took one look at previews and, and such and went, no, that's, I can tell already that's not for me. Uh, the other one is called The Complicity of Geek Masculinity on the Big Bang mm-hmm. Theory. That's the one yeah. where uh, effectively geeks get to behave just as fucking horribly as they accuse jocks of behaving, but it's fine because they're geeks. Penny dear, why don't you shoot another silver bullet my way? <laughs> so well. She never even got to see my penis. <laughs> so yeah, moving on from there. Um, the fireworks scene. Uh, at this stage, um, <laughs> Tim comes back and uh, starts to try to reconnect with Gloria. Uh, the turmoil that has gone on between them and his inability to really communicate with her, but he's uh, at the same time cottoned on to the fact that she's trying to be better It's not sitting right with him, so he wants to come and deal with it in person. So he comes to see her. His intention develops into, I'd like you to come back with me to New York. We can work on you and us there. He he can see that she's trying to be better, and and that's a good thing. And that, of course, enrages Oscar. (laughs) Can someone describe exactly what happens with the power play next? So Tim shows up at the bar with Gloria. She... I think she even says, like, oh, I got to I gotta go to work now. Okay, I'll come with you. Let's see this bar where you're working. So she comes in, and Tim's with her immediately. That, um, you know, that gorilla sense we were kind of talking about before, it immediately gets fired up in Oscar, and he, <laughs> yep, he starts to do the, the chest-pounding thing. Sees Tim, and, I mean, what? Jason Sudeikis, handsome man. Can't hold a friggin' candle to Dan Stevens. I'm sorry, but he just cannot. Like, Dan Stevens is beautiful. He is gorgeous. And so this, you know, very well put together, very handsome dude shows up with a very posh accent. And, of course, it's immediately a threat to him. So he immediately starts exerting his power. Oh, hey, Gloria. Oh, it's great, great that you're coming in here. Oh, Oh, you think that's that's a good enough job? You think, oh, being a waitress, that's that's worthy. I'm glad you think that that's worthy. Hey, Gloria, go get us a couple of beers. Go take care of Joe over there with his coffee. He starts immediately ordering her around in front of Tim. He then actually says, no, Joe, wait a few Shortly. minutes. He gets her to sit back down so yep. that it's like he's controlling uh, Joe and uh, Gloria. And yeah, Tim. he's controlling the entire the entire environment. And then he starts this very long, drawn-out story about what would be the most irresponsible thing that I can do in the bar. Would it be, you know, starting a fire? Would it be breaking all my stuff? Would it be, you know, busting up the place? And then he starts telling the story about this huge firecracker that his friends bought at one point. And it's enormous. It is completely impractical. Like, they have put it away in storage in a back room somewhere for a reason. Because 
I don't even know, like, you would have to have such a wide open space to actually set this thing off because it's gigantic. And they keep saying, ah, yeah, we're going to save it for a, for a special occasion. She takes the firecracker and is like, puts it in the middle of the bar, which the, the middle of the space is kind of mostly in the western area hmm. that he's opened back up again, ironically. And this Tells Joe, hey, Joe, you violently kicking chairs away, which makes other patrons get up and leave. Mm. Yep, other patrons get up and leave. He puts it right in front of Joe and says, hey, Joe, you might want to move. He immediately gets out, and he actually lights the fuse and lets it go off in this very enclosed space, which, point, point proven, yeah, that's probably the most irresponsible thing you could have done. But it's all as a way of showing to Tim and to Gloria I just did the most irresponsible thing that I could do in this bar. She is not going to leave here with you. Guaranteed, she is going to stay. He may as well... It's self-destructive as well. This is his property. He's Mm -hmm. firing off and burning. He may as well have just stood there punching himself in the face until Tim left. Or or, Or just set fire to the place, because that's essentially what happens. But it's all to prove... To make this big drawn out show of it it's all to prove that even at my worst i can ensure that you will voluntarily stay with me Mm -hmm. there's two other things about the the process of this little storytelling exercise as well and that is one he is putting a bomb in her memory space effectively Hmm. and setting it off because this is what then triggers her to start remembering what happened when they were kids and the second thing is because he's constantly referring to himself as uh, a child when I mean I think he was like a teenager when he actually got the thing but he associates the act of wanton destruction with childhood with being free and not under control and again that kind of tells you that he's got this massive amount of repression going on in his own head and when it gets let out it goes kaboom so when he gets drunk he regresses when he regresses he becomes destructive exactly and Mm -hmm. as we are about to see his as a child he was a incredibly destructive person as a way of expressing himself it, the flashback takes place relatively wordlessly. They, uh, it, it's them as kids walking to school with these two dioramas. They seem to be like they know each other, but they aren't close friends. Like, you know, it, it, I, I could be wrong on this one, but they, the, maybe they are friends, but not best friends. They seem like classmates. Yeah. Classmates and somebody to walk to school from home yeah. with. Just somebody that you you pair up and you walk to school every day with. Physically close rather than emotionally close. She has built a little model of uh, Seoul Korea, and he has built a little model of... Madrid. It's Madrid, but he can't spell. Okay. Uh, and wow. the wind blows... Uh, uh, is it, does it blow both Marid or just Sol? No, into- no. As, as just they're walking soul. along, he keeps... So that you can see him looking at her model and the way they're carrying them, they're right next to them, next to each other. So you can see how much better hers is than his. Than his, yeah. And he is obviously impressed by what she's achieved and also 
Jealous. A little bit envious. Uh, envious yeah. Mm-hmm. Although at this point it's quite subtle. But yeah, then the storm comes in and her model gets blown out of her hands. It gets blown into a building site that would later become this park. And he immediately goes to get her diorama back. She uh, goes in after him. She seems elated, like, wow, someone's actually doing something nice for me at this point. Which, again, uh, makes you ask questions about her upbringing. And when she finds him, he is stomping the living fuck out of Seoul, Korea. Appropriately enough. And a (laughs) bolt of lightning comes down from the heavens and strikes her in the top of the head because whatever science fiction we want to read into this, it creates a link between her and the kaiju and the appearances and Soul Korea, very specifically. And he is twinned in with this as well. The fact that she has the carry expression at that point, the way I read it is her anger and frustration draws the lightning down. Right to her and then she creates the monster as an expression of her need to lash back at him. So she has the X-Men 3 power of stairs. On a side note, at the beginning, Gloria is feeling an itch in the top of her head, which becomes like a little physical tick she has, where she sort of scratches the top of her head, and the kaiju does the same. That is, of course, where the lightning struck her and the power came in. Okay. Baby Phoenix! So, uh, and then we cut back to uh, the, uh, the the present day, and... Yeah, as, as, as we've said, uh, when Oscar drinks, he regresses to this destructive child that he was. And all of his resentment and bitterness seems to have been exemplified in Gloria, this person that he figured, you're better than me. And that creates only negative feelings in him. Even the ones that he starts off seemingly being supportive, they're all rooted in something far darker. And she even highlights and calls attention to the fact that she thought initially that it was to do with desire that he wanted to possess her that that was the the underpinning of his behavior towards her but it's so much more straightforward than that and it actually it harkens to something else that's true about the i suppose the idealization of women that men put women on pedestals so they can yank them off again yeah it's a it's a deeper thing too yes she's uh, it's so much more simple but it definitely gets more to the root of where his insecurities come from you just you can't stand that your life feels that small yeah. you can't stand that you are so small inside mm. and again it's that it's not just that he's small and that he's not as good and that sh- he saw that um, that his model was not fantastic. It's that somebody else had one that was better than him. It almost doesn't matter who Gloria was. It's that he was comparing himself to somebody else and feeling that he had not come up to par. And his response to this is not to look at his own actions, his own abilities, and to improve himself. And, you know, I don't know, practice. Make a better diorama next time, maybe. But to lash out. Learn how to spell. Absolutely. But to lash out and to destroy 
what the other person has created simply because you are envious of You're it. You're talking about a recipe for being miserable for your entire life. There. There's nothing good comes of that line of thinking. Mm. So in what way does the importance of communication come through within this film? Communication, that is, the, the steam. There's sort of the obvious ones where Tim is trying to reach out to Gloria and he's not really getting through to her or she ignores him completely or there's a disconnect in their communication where they just don't understand each other or they're just not listening to each other. There is Gloria going out of her way to find out what the Korean phrases are for, I'm sorry, it won't happen again, I made a mistake, and having the monster write it in a safe spot that's a big enough area to, you know, to doing her research, basically, and trying to make amends in a way that then people there will actually understand it. So she's making an effort to put things into their own words, into their language, and reach out that way. There's the big gaps in the storytelling that kind of lends to uh, communication issues as well, especially because there's so much that we don't know about what exactly was Oscar and Gloria's relationship when they were kids. How did they actually know each other? Did their parents know each other? Uh, what was that? What was their relationship with their parents? There were these big gaps in what their upbringing was and what their relationships are with each other and other people. Something happened at some point to make them disconnect from that. I think there is a suggestion that their parents were friends because uh, Oscar has a key for Gloria's house because... Her yeah, parents yeah. gave that's it to right. his parents at some stage. Yeah, that's true. And the fact that she goes to his mother's funeral, too, probably wouldn't have if they didn't know each other some way. Because if they were young enough, presumably Gloria's parents would have insisted, hey, we, we got to do this thing. You know, we, we got to go make an appearance. Pretty much every step forward, every sincere apology and endeavor to be a better person in this film requires communication, even if it's one-way communication where you are interpreting signals. Every step backwards is closing off those uh, doors and shutters and blocking out the rest of the world. One of the major reasons why her working in a bar is so antithetical to her moving forwards is that it shuts her off from the rest of the world she's marooned with oscar she goes home she goes to sleep she gets up she goes to the bar she goes home she goes to sleep she gets up she goes to the bar she's stuck with oscar and garth and joel mm. and there's there's no way to communicate with um the rest of the world and she kind of has to get back out into it to become the better version of herself again the uh, the way she works out about you know how the hell to deal with Oscar in the end, it, it's so subtle. I didn't catch it both times I saw it before. The map that she's got with the sort of a red line drawn between mm -hmm. uh, Maine and Korea flips upside down as one of the drawing pins falls off and it, it just swings around. But that yep. shows the line going in the opposite direction, and so that's the. <gasps> moment 
and uh, she communicates with him as soon as she gets to cut him Tim as soon as she gets to Korea he was expecting her hopefully to come and, and join him in New York she tells him she's okay and uh, she then goes to confront the man she knows is going to be at that park the next morning because he forbade her from leaving town and so it's like well you left town is what I'm going to do and Oscar's been drinking while sitting on his uh, van and throwing bottles into a children's playground so you know to create broken glass hazards there if you need any further indication that this man is fucking broken Sat by your bedside, mumbled into sorrow, holding on to your hand, my back against the morrow's beauty, and there's a privilege imparting, I know. The years turn to days, and days turn to hours, penitent in blight, praising flesh amongst the flowers. I regret a lot, said a lot of things I never thought I would say. When I think about her and I think about her every day Well the night was ours, we were swinging in the stars when the lights went out She was burning bright when we said goodnight, then the lights went out Oh honey, when the lights go out, will I see you again? So it works the other way, and she outwits him by turning up in Seoul, Korea itself, and so the kaiju turns up in the playground, bearing down on him. She picks him up, and what does this final <laughs> confrontation symbolize? Because there's, there's like multiple layers to the, the kaiju picking up the, ma- the man, the robot being crushed by the woman. and There's a lot going on here. It's a little unclear as to what actually happens to Oscar himself after this whole it's pretty confrontation. clear to me. I think you want me to draw you a picture? Involved. Well, first, <laughs> first, she picks him up and screams right into his face just to really make him crap his pants um, to, to start off with, which I thought was hilarious, is that he just turns into a... He melts into this, like, blubbering, like, child again. After that, she throws him, like full on throws him so that, again, we can assume that Oscar is is somewhere just all over the pavement or on the side of a building somewhere. I don't want to think about that, but the robot gets crushed and it kind of disappears outside of the, it leaves the zone so when she the throws air, it out, the yes, robot the area is, I, I hadn't noticed is, that before yes. i was worried that she might have caused devastation by throwing the robot into korea but no it disappears and becomes ephemeral oscar yes, however him, because of the momentum would simply pancake against the nearest hard thing exactly and she makes it a point where she turns like she's worked out where the river is and where it meets the bank where this mm-hmm. monster is appearing so she specifically throws the robot back out into the water, into this big body of water. Although so, it disappears. I, did, I made note of that this exactly. time. It, it, mm-hmm. it, yeah. yeah, so it does dissipate and it gets out of that area. But this is definitely her big moment of, I have taken back control of the situation. You cannot tell me what to do anymore. 
And if this is what it comes down to, then, yeah, I'm going to take the matter into my own hands. Quite literally, I am going to put an end to this once and for all. One of my favorite, um, I mean, there's so much imagery in here. They, uh, Sharon, sorry, mm. Sharon, you were about to say something. I'm going to let you go. It was just to do with the wordplay of the place names. She goes from main head mm-hmm. to soul. soul. And that's what enables her to use the leverage of distance to make herself so much bigger than he is. That the imagery is of the robot effectively towering over her. She is a small woman with this giant robot that's standing there. He is physically more intimidating than her. But when she gets to grips with him, he becomes this tiny little man in her hands because he is even smaller on the inside than he is afraid of. The fantasy version of himself is the huge robot, but what he actually is is the small man dwarfed by this colossal I expected her to bite his head off like Attack on Titan, and I thought that would be a little grisly, and I was like, they're not going to go there, are they? That may have been a bit too much. But it's it's kind of perfect that rather than just screaming and wailing and, and being frightened, he roars at her and tries to exert control again. Put me down right now, you fucking bitch! Now, she can't hear him say this in the using the uh, uh, terms of the movie, but I think she, she knows what has to be done. And so she just does it in the quickest, most efficient, straight, you know, just throwing him way. And way back at the bar when he said, I'm going to do, I'm going to go and stomp through that city, I thought, you've got to take him down. It, it just, it seemed like he had re- reduced her options to the point where she had no further choices. Mm. Well, in terms of the symbolic abusive relationship, her only way forward is to remove him from her sphere of influence, from the, the, the area of her life that he has any impact over. And there are only so many ways that you can do that in real life. In terms of the story, though, the fact that he represents a threat not just to her but to many, many other people as well means that she has to take the action movie step of completely destroying him. Mm. But again, the fact that her action is not... She doesn't step on him. She doesn't bite his head off. She doesn't... It's not a, a kill him here. It's a expel him from... Throw him away to where he can do no more damage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a wonderful moment and cathartic. Could we call Gloria a hero at the end of this movie? Yes. Okay, why? Because she is presented with an option of responsibility. And several times she is given the choice to abdicate that responsibility. And I know you said that she has that responsibility imposed on her and there is no choice to not take it but there totally is and oscar oscar gives her get outs there's a point earlier on where she realizes what's happened and it totally devastates her she realizes how many people she's killed and it's too much it overwhelms her and he effectively says they're there there's nothing you can do Mm. and at that point she could have gone yeah you're right pass me the whiskey but she doesn't and it, the, there's 
smaller versions of that that happen later on as well. Tim gives her an escape. Come home with me. She'll be away from it. She can just forget about it and pretend it never mm. happened. Just go to New York. Maybe he'll get tired of stomping on career. Absolutely. She she can choose to walk away from this. Instead, she chooses to go into the battleground and... And there's no guarantee of her safety, by the way. He could have charged forward as the robot and stomped her. Absolutely. Yeah, if he realized what was going on, then yeah, he could have done the same thing in reverse. Now that, my friend, is a clear-cut case of him or me. And you best believe it ain't gonna be me. So, so yeah, she is pre- presented with the responsibility and she must have little Peter Parker in there because she t- she takes it and it makes her the best version of herself. And then there's this wonderful little coda where she walks down the street dazed while the rest of the people of Korea celebrate the fact that the robot that's been uh, become this terrible threat to them has been banished by the kaiju. Well, actually, by this unseen force. They didn't even see the kaiju do it. And it's not made clear that she was the one doing it, but then she goes into a, uh, a bar lady behind the counter she says do you want to hear a funny story and the lady behind the counter says sure would you like a drink and the the expression on Anne Hathaway's face goes (sighs) it's this fantastic moment to end on because it means it's not just like you get rid of your inner demons and then you never have to worry about drink again or you never have to worry about your own shitty behaviour again. This is going to require effort for the rest of her life. She is going to have to... She's taken that responsibility. She has to keep it up. And it is so much harder to maintain than it is to just do it in the first place. That's the obviously the, the, the first most important step, but the maintaining is the endurance part of it. And it's it's a blackly comic way to end... I love that. The monster is gone, but the monster is still there. Yeah. She still has to contain it. Mm-hmm. And the first time we watched the uh, film, I was like, are they going to end on this song? And they didn't. But um, it, it's, on what the, the song they choose is that when the lights go out one, which was actually playing earlier in the, in the song, but uh, in the mm. movie. But I immediately ran to my iPod, threw it on the uh, Bluetooth and put on Gloria by Laura Branigan which we're going to end on now. And it's just a sprightly, poppy, 80s, aerobics-style song. But if you listen to the lyrics, it's about a woman having a breakdown. So it's kind of perfect. And uh, I think that's colossal. (laughs) Is there anything else that we haven't mentioned? Um, The only other thing that I had in my notes that was particularly significant was... There's a conversation that Gloria has with Oscar about what's been going on with him in all of these interim years. And he mentions the fact that about six years ago, he had a fairly serious relationship with somebody who had a child. And she moved in with him and only stayed for a little while and then left. Now, Oscar's explanation for this was that she got bored real quickly. And then he says something about that it's not easy to get bored round, not easy to not get bored round here. There are ways to do it, but none of them are healthy. And that, in a way, is an admission because he's not engaging in healthy ways of not getting bored. Garth isn't engaging in healthy ways of not getting bored. Nobody in this town really is. I saved that phrase as well. Yeah. It's, uh... um, however, I think the under 
pinning implication of why she left was she realised fairly quickly that he was dangerous. Yeah. I think she he may have uh, she may have felt like he was a threat to her child. He may have just been nasty one time to the kid and she got the fuck out of there. Absolutely. But, but the the main point of that conversation is that Oscar is is admitting that he can recognize unhealthy behavior. He is choosing not to do anything about it. He has it within himself just as Gloria has it within herself to sort out his shit and he chooses not to. Mm. He feels like he should be a bigger person, but ultimately being a bigger person is defined one, by one's actions. Mm. But this is the thing. He, d- he doesn't really... He doesn't feel like he should work to become a bigger person. He just feels like he's entitled to be a bigger person, that it should just happen. He's poisonous as fuck. Yeah. It's just expected, like, oh, I say I am this thing, so you should just take me at my word for it. Just very briefly, I wanted to mention the score for this mm. movie because we haven't Bear really McCreary, talked about yeah. Bear McCreary it's really great um, it's kind of got that uh, and it starts right away like the very opening shot where the original kaiju from 25 years ago is going through Seoul it's got that big epic feeling of a monster or a superhero movie which kind of makes sense uh, because some of his other credits were the Sarah Connor Chronicles and Battlestar Battle Galactica Star- yeah He's done the score for almost all of the God of War games, so they're all these kind of big epic stories. So that was really appropriate for that. I thought it's just it just sounds really good. It really fits with the whole theme of the of the movie as well. Uh, the uh, one of my favorite critics, Mark Kermode, said that uh, the score was what managed to bridge the alarming tonal shifts in this film. I don't think the the tone shifts were as alarming as he's saying I think uh, it's maybe a little quirk it's possible just that the humour which was prevalent throughout also managed to bridge that gap so well for me that it kind of ironed out those creases I think if they tried to play this completely straight Zack Snyder straight it would have been so self important oh, <laughs> oh god uh, I, wa- I actually uh, funny enough I watched that uh, that marker mode review of this as well just looking for interviews and seeing if I could find anybody else talking about the movie and one of the things that he mentioned a couple of times was that you keep expecting this movie to completely fall apart Mm. you keep expecting it to not work and somehow it keeps all of the elements together all the way through which I thought was a very good point it's like yeah he's He's right about that. You do kind of expect at some point the premise itself is just going to collapse and it's not going to work. And somehow it does. He also said something that I thought was very, it almost perfectly summed up the whole thing is that people can be monsters and monsters can be people. Nice. Yeah. And I really liked that uh, comment that he had about this. Another thing that I just want to mention before we close out, the director, uh, Nacho Nacho Vigalondo, Mm -hmm. this guy is a seriously creative dude, very unique storyteller. And I want to mention if if any of the listeners saw Colossal and liked it, Mm -hmm. go out and seek Time Crimes, which he wrote the script for. Time Crimes is incredible. It's this great little thriller horror movie 
more people need to see it. It's almost exactly like Colossal. It's got that quirkiness. It's got that very uh, unreal feeling to it that sort of this shouldn't really be happening. And there's also a, a supernatural element to it as well, which I think he's he must just be one of those people who's very good at riding that line between reality and supernatural, reality and horror, whatever uh, you know, whatever that happens to be. Mm. But Time Crimes is definitely worth seeing. It's a very different sort of movie because it's it does lean more towards a thriller or horror movie. So just bear that in mind if that's not generally your cup of tea, but I think it's absolutely worth seeing. It's a fascinating little film. I'm trying to think of another uh, similar film to this. Oh, actually, another one that Como compared it to uh, at the beginning of his uh, review, A Monster Calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has that same sense of the macro and the micro. The micro is what you focus on the whole way through the story. Uh, and you, you may have noticed, folks, that we've been talking almost entirely about the, the drama of this and very, very little about the whole kaiju element of it. It's because it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful little metaphor for what's going on. Mm-hmm. It, it almost doesn't matter because it's, it's the, the, just the larger version of the, the thing that's happening. And A Monster Calls does more weaving of storytelling into it, but it's the same principle in that there are big scary things going on but they are analogous to the smaller personal things which are so much more frightening and a monster calls will make you cry oh there's something else i've seen recently that does that too although feel free to cut this out if you think it's potentially spoilery too much okay marabone Oh, no, no, that that works. Yeah, also anything that gets people to see The Secret of Marrowbone, just because, like, 14 <laughs> people saw this film. I went to see it, and I said, Sharon, you should see it. And I had seen it at the first possible point that I could, and Sharon saw it the next day at the last possible point that she could. It was in and out of the cinema so fast, the cinema went, was that it? You will now find it on disc, folks, or on, at the, uh, on home formats and streaming. Uh, and if you really liked The Orphanage, it is uh, from the same stable of uh, minds and uh, it's it's not as good as the orphanage but very little is there's also a film called i kill giants i caught that on netflix originally based on a uh, comic by joe kelly very similar thematically excellent film If you've just tuned in, this radio program is funded by independent sponsors, several of which have mutated and grown to skyscraper size and are now proceeding down the street, causing havoc downtown. First up, a radioactive werewolf named Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, that's a giant anteater, Sean Duran, some kind of shark boy, Kevin Otero, that's a badger with knives for fingers, Luke Hatfield is a breakdancing robot, and there's some kind of big lizard called Nick Horde, and here comes a giant albino ape, that's Duran Barnett, ridden by the rock. Tom Painter, he's heading up the human resistance. Sergeant Finn Barnacall has a rocket launcher. Jameis Enright, a net launcher. Good luck with that, Jameis. Mark Loosh packs a flamethrower to dispose of oversized ants. Dan Mayer just power-punched a cockroach in a orbit. Joe Crow is a giant raven. It's hard to tell with that one. It's a subtle one. Chris Finnick is a perfectly normal man just trying to write fanfic on a train. But Toby Youngest, this enormous Audrey 2 has just swallowed that train. There's fire and debris everywhere and Dave Hickman is 
running to safety, cradling a screaming Aaron Lecluse. David Garcia Abrell is filming the whole thing for a news station, and he just got devoured by Kieran Detchler, who appears to be some kind of engorged marsupial. And the marsupial has himself been eaten by Lorraine Chisholm, the rampaging mother T-Rex. It's chaos down here. Thank goodness we're being paid. Thank you, and back to you in the studio, Bob. Oh, I think about her, and I think about her every day. Well, the night was ours, we were swinging the stars when the light went out. She was okay, and that is colossal. We hope that this was satisfying enough for our uh, backer I, I think it i think it was and this has uh, been a really fantastic show thank you so so much maya for coming on yes uh, thanks for having me again guys and we'll be back next week with a special show on the playstation 4 spider-man game i'll give you a hint it's one of my favorite games ever can i do a plug alex you can do a plug i was just about to Real ask quick. you where yeah uh, maya oh, would you like to plug something i would Anyone listening to this podcast obviously likes these very detailed, highly in-depth discussions of movies and sometimes television shows and sometimes other media. If this is the sort of thing that you like, I highly recommend the Kane and Rinse podcast, which basically does this same sort of thing with video games. And my specific plug is that I am going to be a guest on their show regarding Final Fantasy VI, which is my personal, personally my favorite video game of all time. So I'm very excited to do this. We're recording in about a week, so I believe the show is scheduled to come out sometime around Thanksgiving, U.S. Thanksgiving, so towards the end of November, that should be dropping. So again, if this is a sort of discussion, in-depth critique that you enjoy, Kane and Rince does a very similar thing for video games. And I'm just super excited to be doing that show. So be on the lookout for that in the next month or so. Okay, so Kane and Rince, Final Fantasy VI. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And this is Laura Brannigan with Gloria. Right, so we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. <laughs> <laughs>